topic, which was not my uh, was not my suggestion. It was uh, it was a suggestion from from the group. It was grassroots uh, suggestion was to talk about Mashiach. I'm sure that we've touched on this topic in the past, and when I say the past, I mean like you know we have like a decade of history together. Some of you are weren't there for the whole decade of the. Uh, uh, of the time that we've been doing classes together, but some of you have been, and so I'm pretty sure that we've had um, had discussions of Mashiach before. But it's a it's a worthwhile topic to to explore, and we're going to try to divide it up over the um, over the upcoming weeks. Um, uh, how we'll divide it over uh, six different sessions, five or six different sessions, we'll have to play that by ear. But for tonight, I thought the best thing to do the, is is to sort of give a basic introduction to the concept, to the sources that relate to the idea of Mashiach, so we have a kind of an orientation to the subject. And then we can get into, obviously, like everything else in Judaism, there are different opinions, there are a lot of different angles on the topic, as well as a lot of different theories about the topic, because after all, um, the Mashiach hasn't come yet, so much of what we discuss is, is, is speculative, or you know, you'll have... Uh, different viewpoints, opinions, interpretations, expectations about Mashiach that uh, will differ. So we're going to hopefully touch upon a lot of the different elements over the uh, ensuing weeks. But just to give an introduction, so um, Mashiach is a very is a topic that that grabs people people's attention. Uh, among the topics that are probably the hottest topics, like a topic that if you put it on a, a flyer, you're sure to get a turnout, is Mashiach and Olam Haba. You know, people are very concerned about Mashiach and Olam Haba. So the, uh, so the, you know, the afterlife, what does it mean? Is there such a thing as reincarnation? People um, are really attracted to the subject. Now, why is Mashiach such an, a fascinating subject? What, what is it that, um, that draws us to the subject, that attracts us uh, to, to the subject so much? Why is it so intriguing? Talk about Mashiach. There's so many things that we could discuss that, I, that you might find fascinating. Why is it that Mashiach is something that grabs everybody's attention and interest so readily? It's such an easy sell. We didn't even have to have dinner tonight. People would have come. Why? Why is Mashiach so interesting to everybody? So I, I, think, I think it's because people are attracted to, first of all, things that, are, that sound supernatural. You know, there's an, I, there's an expectation of this, you know, messianic time. The Mashiach is going to come. When the Mashiach comes, things are going to be different. Just like people are attracted to the idea of Olam Haba, the idea of afterlife, because it's something mysterious. It's going to be different than life that we're used to, right? The existence that we're accustomed to now, it's not going to be like that. So people are very, very interested in what is it going to be like, because it's mysterious, it's supernatural. Sometimes it's presented in a mystical way. All of these things attract our interest and our attention. Of course, there's also the element, and I think this is even more so with Mashiach than with Olam Haba, there's the element of uh, everyone recognizes we live in an imperfect world, right? The world is, uh, has a lot of work uh, that needs to be done. There's, you know, we feel unhappy, we feel frustrated, there's war, there's crime, there's lack of harmony, there's jealousy, there's all kinds of negative energy going around and all kinds of conflict and all kinds of ignorance and hatred, all of the bad things that we see in the world. And we have a belief and a hope that, you know, with the time, in the times of Mashiach, all of these problems will be resolved. So we, it gives us hope, it gives us a feeling of, you know, that, that all of our troubles will, will come to an end. So in that way, it's like kind of a, what we would call a, a panacea for our problems, a, uh, a cure for all of our difficulties that we would, uh, you know, that we face. We feel like, oh, when the Mashiach comes, things will be different. Life will be different. Uh, whatever concerns us, worries us, troubles us, disturbs us, won't be anymore, you know? Like whatever we see on the news that's so upsetting, whether it be about the Jewish people or just about... The human race, you know, we have a we have an abiding hope that with the coming of Mashiach, that will, that things will be different, and uh, and I think that that definitely attracts people to the idea of Mashiach also because they want to envision and imagine a better time, but 
one of the unfortunate things about the idea of Mashiach is that people don't really believe he's going to come. And how do I know that? Because people will say, oh yeah, that'll be when Mashiach comes. You know, when they're talking about something that, like a, you might say, that'll happen when pigs fly or something like that. The most unlikely scenario possible. So a person will be like, yeah, when the Mashiach comes maybe. We'll be sitting here until the Mashiach comes. That implies that, you know, you think it's going to be a very, very long time where it's going to be forever. Right? So people have become a little bit jaded, let's say. They've, they've lost their fervor because they feel like, hey, how long are we really going to wait? Uh, and how long are we going to be uh, saying, oh yeah, the Mashiach is going to come, we're going 2,000 years and, uh, or more, and we still haven't seen anything. So uh, people begin to, it becomes like a cliche. Yeah, when the Mashiach comes, such and such will happen. Uh, and when you look back and you see that, you know, a few hundred years ago, they were sure the Mashiach was coming any day. 2,000 years ago, they were sure it was coming any day. You know, at many, many different junctures in, in history, there was a belief that the Mashiach was coming any day, including what we just, you know, we mourned the deaths of Rabbi Akiva's students during the Omer. And of course, during the period of Rabbi Akiva, there was a messianic movement surrounding Bar Kokhba, who uh, was believed, at least by Rabbi Akiva, that he was going to be the Mashiach. So there was a hope uh, that, you know, right after the destruction of the Beit HaMikdash, the Mashiach was like going to be there any day. And, and yet that didn't happen. So... Uh, uh, you know, so it's a, it, it's unfortunately, it's become so much is it an attractive idea and so much is it sort of an ideal that we dream of that we kind of relegate it to the realm of dreams and don't believe that it could possibly ever come true deep down, right? That, that's part of the problem with the idea of Mashiach. So what I wanted to talk about in our first session together is the most easy to believe idea of Mashiach. Okay, meaning an idea of Mashiach that we could actually conceive of happening even not too far into the future. Not to mean, that doesn't mean that it wouldn't require a lot of effort or change or upheaval or anything like that. It would, but something that seems within our grasp. Because let's face it, you know, when you, when you think of the Mashiach as in really supernatural terms, like somebody who's going to, come and save everybody from every trouble and all of a sudden the whole world is going to be different and it's going to be perfect and I'm never going to have to have the, I'm never going to have to wait on uh, at the DMV for my uh, number to be called again for the rest of my life wow that sounds impossible right especially the DMV part, right let alone all the other things okay it's it's hard to envision but if if you understand the Mashiach in a, in uh, in terms that are less supernatural less uh, mystical, let's say, okay, it, it, and we bring it a little bit closer to our experience of life and, and our experience of the world, it becomes a little more accessible, a little more believable, and actually might direct us in a path to actually bring Mashiach. Not just to say, oh, I'm, doing, I'm giving this tzedakah to bring Mashiach, I'm doing this mitzvah to bring Mashiach, but actually to understand what it would mean to pave the way to an actual uh, Mashiach coming. So, to what is the reason why it's important for there to be a Mashiach. Does anybody know what the original source, who's the first person to mention the idea of Mashiach? Where, where, where does the idea of Mashiach even come from? Does anybody know? He said he was going to talk about Acharit right? The end of days. But then he doesn't really actually talk about the end of days, right? He hints to the idea that there's such a thing. Yaakov, when he's blessing his sons, says, I'm going to tell you what's going to happen in the Acharit But then he just sort of talks about their future blessings, but he doesn't really get to the to, to, to the end point of anything about Mashiach. He maybe alludes to it, he maybe hints to it. The, the, the official pasuk about Mashiach in the Torah is when Bil'am says, Darach kochav mi Yaakov, I see a star is going to rise in Yaakov and he's going to uh, defeat all of the nations and he's going to, you know, and that star is supposedly the, was the reason why Rabbi Akiva called Bar Kochba, Bar Kochba, because he was the star. He was going to be the one who would fulfill that prophecy of Bil'am. Bil'am being the bad, the bad, you know, the Navi of the, uh, who wanted to curse the Jews but was forced to bless them, right? So that's, that's the official source of Mashiach in the Torah. But the fact is that Moshe Rabbeinu says, Okay, when Moshe Rabbeinu speaks, he speaks about, not about a figure of the Mashiach, 
Okay, he doesn't speak about a person called Mashiach. But what Moshe Rabbeinu says when he's speaking about the future, and actually we read this on Tisha B'Av morning, if you've ever come to Tisha B'Av Shacharit, um, you would have heard this reading. It talks about the exile, how the Jewish people are going to come to the land of Israel and they're going to become uh, materialistic and get involved in idolatry and lose their way and be exiled. And eventually, um, in the future, things are going to change. That, um, and, and this is what, uh, what Moshe Rabbeinu says, that you're going to find yourself when you're in trouble and all of these bad things happen. So you're talking about the exile. There's that word again. In the end of days. You're going to return to God and listen to him. And, you're going to, and, and he talks about how uh, you know, you're going to be restored. You're, you know, you're going to all do Teshuvah. You're going to be restored. So there's an idea of this very lengthy exile and then something called Acharit Ayamim where everyone is going to do Teshuvah and they're going to come back. Now Moshe Rabbeinu himself doesn't mention a figure of the Mashiach. But he mentions the concept of what we might call a messianic era. Now what has happened is that our we do believe in a person called Mashiach and I'm going to read to you in a second from what the Rambam says about that. But we got into our mental worlds a, an idea of Mashiach that doesn't come from Judaism comes from other religions as a sort of a magical figure or a semi-divine figure which is not something that's a part of Judaism at all the real essence of the Messianic times is that the Jewish people are going to return to the Torah and they're going to return to Eretz Yisrael and again follow the way of God after a long exile that's the main thing the only, tr- the only point is that how do movements start? How do movements happen in reality? They always have a leader, right? There's always somebody spearheading this movement. There's always somebody who is pushing it along or leading the way. In my mind, it's a very, very imperfect analogy for many reasons. I don't want to go into why the analogy is not perfect. Maybe that will be obvious, but I like this analogy to illustrate the point of what a messianic figure would be like in Judaism. And the person that comes to my mind is actually Martin Luther King Jr. Why? Why? Because the circumstances, let's say, in the first half of the 20th century for civil rights, for racism and all that, were very different than they are today. You could say the pendulum's gone to the other extreme, right? It's a, but that's another story. But the movement crystallized around the leadership of a spokesperson, somebody who went out, who pushed people to action, who had a vision and an understanding about social justice and what really, what was wrong with racism and had a vision of how things could be better and actually mobilized people around the vision to change to the point that 60 years ago, if you said somebody was racist, they'd be like, yeah, so, so what? You know, now in our society, in our culture, it's considered a very negative thing. Everyone is like, the worst thing you could call somebody is racist. Okay, you could, a murderer would be okay, but don't say that they're racist, yeah. right? Like it's 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 gone to the opposite extreme. Now that's because of this social movement. The re- that it's and again, it's not a perfect analogy for many reasons. But the reason why I like it as an analogy is because you look at a society that I would say a hundred years ago, in a, nobody would have been able to envision the level of fairness and equality that there is in America, let's say, or in the Western world today. A hundred years ago, nobody would have been able to envision that. Because it was really the society and the culture was steeped in a certain prejudice and racism that it couldn't see beyond that. And if you told somebody, you know, in 100 years, there's going to be basically fundamentally there's equality. I'm sure it's not perfect and people will say it's not perfect. But, you know, we, we're at least at a point where officially, conceptually, everybody subscribes to the principle that all human beings should be treated fairly and the law should apply, you know, uh, you know, without prejudice to everybody in the same way and so on and so forth. All of these things have become uh, core to our sense of what's right 
in, let's say, in America, right? And I would say in the Western world in general. So that happened, that didn't happen because a million people or two million or 20 million people naturally gravitated to certain ideas. Even if they had those ideas and even if they thought about them and spoke about them, they wouldn't have necessarily produced the kind of motion in the direction of those ideas and realizing those ideas, that necessitated a leader. And the leader turned out to be Martin Luther King Jr. really in America. And in fact, just by totally chance, I was listening to the radio earlier this week and there was like some talk radio thing and one guy was saying, you know, Martin Luther King Jr., not to take anything away from him, but he was also in the right place at the right time, meaning the movement was ready to have a leader that would mobilize them and that would push for change and the implementation of certain ideals that, yeah, every, a lot of people were subscribing to in theory, but nobody really knew how to uh, implement in practice. And that's, that's what happened in this time. And so when I think about what a Mashiach is, and, and the truth is that the analogy is good in, in one other way, which is that one of the things that's very interesting about growth about human growth and the growth of individuals and the growth of, of civilizations is that we all have certain convictions and beliefs and principles that we subscribe to in theory, but what we are in practice and where we really are and how we actually live our lives, a lot of times there's a gap between the values that we subscribe to or that we proclaim and, and our actual behavior and our, the, the way that we conduct our lives on a daily basis, right? A lot of the, and that's what growth is about, you know, Sometimes we have to change our values. Sometimes we realize we've adopted the wrong values. But assuming that we have the right values and we're trying to, we're trying to live up to certain values, but we do it imperfectly and we're always trying to correct ourselves, I think that's part of human growth, right? So, and that's also part of society's growth. So the interesting thing is that um, the concept that all human beings are created equal was like in the Declaration of Independence. You know, but it took... 200 years for Americans actually to live by that principle in practice. So in theory, the idea was there all along, but it took um, a long process of, of evolution, societal, cultural evolution, education, whatever you want to call it, and in the end, some pushing and some pulling to get America to be true to the values that in theory it was subscribing to all along, you know? And so in the same way, that's really what the idea of Mashiach is. And that's why I like the analogy too, because everything is in the Torah. All the values and all the truths and all the principles and all the ideals are in the Torah already. But there has always been a wide gap between the ideals of Torah and the way that the Jewish people are actually conducting themselves individually and collectively. That's always been true. And so all the Nevi'id, all the prophets of our history pointed that out and were trying to correct it. Of course, they, were, they had limited success. But the idea of a Mashiach is somebody who will be able to finally make that message heard for the Jewish people to the point that real change takes place. Okay? And that's, the, that's using the Martin Luther King Jr. analogy. That's what happened. That's what he did that was different from what, let's say, social, uh, social rights activists and civil rights activists had, um, social justice activists, activists and civil rights activists had done before him, right? That he really, he really uh, initiated change that was of a substantial nature. And that's, that's the idea of really what Mashiach is in the simplest terms. So what the Torah is describing is the Torah is describing this point in history where the Jewish people will be in exile and will say, you know what, we need to return to our roots. We need to return to our fundamentals. We need to be true to the principles that our nation was founded upon. The principles of Torah. How are you going to do that? People are just going to all wake up simultaneously in their bed at the same time and realize they need to do that? Obviously not. There's going to be a process of education. There's going to be a process of, there's going to be revolutionary leader or leaders who facilitate that let's say, enlightenment, that new awareness, that new direction, okay? That's why you can understand why certain individuals in history, people thought they were going to be the Mashiach. Going all the way back to Shlomo HaMelech, 
Oh, he could, he could have been the Mashiach. Look at what he accomplished. He built the Beit HaMikdash. He was educating the people. He wrote the book of Mishlei, the book of Kohelet, the book of Sher Shirim. He was trying to guide the Jewish people to see the wisdom of Torah in their lives and to live by it fully and to sanctify God's name. He had nations of the world, the Queen of Sheba and all of these other dignitaries coming and so impressed with what he was doing. Okay? This, so Shlomo Melech was, seemed like he was going to be the Mashiach. Of course, he failed. Another one that the Chachamim say is Chizkiyahu Melech. What happened during the times of Chizkiyahu? The people had fallen very far from the way of Torah, very far. Okay? They had lost, or practically lost their connection to God and to Judaism. And he initiated a revolution, a renaissance of Jewish life of Jewish education. The Chachamim talk about how every child was like an expert in Jewish law. His educational program was so comprehensive and thorough. And he really brought everybody back, took tremendous effort and, and it went to a, uh, you know, to a remarkable extent, really brought the Jewish people back around to knowing Torah and living by Torah. You know, he, he, he reestablished the Beit HaMikdash as the center of a Jewish worship. He did so much to establish the nation of Israel as an independent country with its own set of values and its own mission, its own purpose, tremendously. But the only thing was he made a mistake. Again, he had an opportunity. He had the nations of the world coming to him so impressed with salvation that God had wrought for Chizkiah Melech. I don't want to go into his whole story. You should read his story. Okay? What happened to Chizkiah Melech? Um, incredible things happened to him and instead of using the opportunity to do Kiddush Hashem and to lead the way he instead wanted the approval and the acceptance of the nations of the world he was so he was so excited about the fact that they came to him that he forgot about the fact that he was supposed to be their inspiration and he wasn't supposed to be I don't know what you would say fanboy response when these kings of these other nations came to to visit him Right, so that was the that was the failing, let's say, of of Chizkiyahu Melech. So Chazal say that the Jewish people had opportunities where they could have had the Mashiach. They could have had, um, the, meaning, they had a leader. He wasn't some kind of divine leader. He didn't fall out of the sky. He wasn't wearing a cape with a big S on his shirt. Right, just a regular human being, but a great human being, a knowledgeable human being who saw their purpose as being leading the Jewish people on the path of Torah in a very focused way, a very determined way. And he really effectuated change and he was on the brink of really transforming the people when he stopped short and he didn't complete the mission, he didn't see it through. So it was sad, it was tragic, but it, was, uh, but it just shows you that the opportunity to have a messianic figure is not something that we have to uh, you know, that some kind of only happens, is only going to happen in some miraculous circumstance. It happened in natural circumstances, a great leader. And you can see why, and I'm not, I'm, I'm going to touch this. I know that normally I wouldn't touch this with a 10-foot pole, but I'm leaving soon, so, okay? Like, you can see why, let's say, Chabad thought the Rebbe was going to be the Mashiach, right? Now, obviously, I don't subscribe to that, but, um, and I'll tell you why I don't, but, uh but you could see why, because he made enormous change. He actually made a huge impact, not only on Jews, but on the world. And he was a Talmud Chacham, tremendous Talmud Chacham, knew the Torah and was trying to lead people to the Torah. So you could see why a figure like that that had a global impact, people would say, wow, this is, a, this is somebody who's uh, moving towards being the Mashiach. You could see why they would, why they would believe that. Okay? Now, in a, but the, the point is that it's a... It's, a natural progression towards the Jewish people um, living by their ideals. Meaning when the nation has evolved to a point that they're ready to hear the message of a figure that's going to guide them on the proper path. And that figure arises and emerges. So that's when you have the opportunity to have a Mashiach. But you see that there were many cases where there were potential Mashiach candidates that they didn't see the mission through. It's not like there's one person that God selected that is the one and only. There can be many opportunities for a Mashiach to arise. And if the Jewish people miss the opportunity, it's their fault. And if the Mashiach candidate messes up, then it's his fault. 
but there can be multiple opportunities because of the nature of what the Mashiach really is, which is a leader and an educator. Again, I'm using as an analogy somebody like Martin Luther King Jr., who was both an educator, meaning that he taught certain ideas, that he kept emphasizing certain principles, but also a leader, meaning that he pushed the people to take action to realize those values in the, you know, in the physical world. He wasn't just a talker who gave speeches, but he really brought the people around to... To, to do something about it and to effectuate change. So this is really what the Mashiach is, is supposed to be. And that's why, um, it, you know, it's not about the individual person. It's about the mission that needs to be accomplished. And that's why you can have many people that perhaps qualify, have the potential, have the, you know, have the wherewithal and the skills and the ability to do it, but maybe the generation is not ready. Or you might have a generation that's ready, but the right person, and the right person might have been there, but the right person made the wrong choices, like what happened in the times of Chizkiyahu, or what happened in the times of Shlomo Amelech. Okay? So this is the, this is the idea of Meshach, and I just want to read to you a little bit from the Rambam, because the Rambam uh, is one of the, uh, one of the rabbis that gives us sort of like the most clear, straightforward, and um, understandable and comprehensible uh, description of what the Mashiach will be like. And, uh, and then we can understand why, why we want the Mashiach to come so much. Um, he says, he says, Amelech HaMashiach, this is in, um, towards the very end of the Mishneh Torah, the last two chapters of the Mishneh Torah, he talks about the Yemod HaMashiach. So, uh, there's a thousand chapters in, in the Mishneh Torah, because the Rambam included all 613 mitzvot and explained all 613 mitzvot in the Mishnah Torah. So it's a very, very thorough book. And the end is about the Mashiach. HaMelech HaMashiach atid l'amodu l'achzir machut be'david liyoshna that in the future the, the, the king, the Mashiach, is going to come and restore the Davidic dynasty, the dynasty of David HaMelech, u'mekabetz u'bonem mikdash. He's going to build the Bet HaMikdash. He's going to gather the Jewish people to Israel. And all of the, and everything will go back to what it once was, should be. He says, um, he says, and anybody who doesn't believe in the Mashiach or who doesn't wait for him to come, meaning who's not hoping for him to come, not only does he not believe in all the prophets who prophesied that he was going to come, he doesn't believe in the Torah because the Torah says that in the future Hashem is going to return you, uh, you know, take you out of the exile and return you to your former glory. So even though it doesn't actually mention the persona of them, you know, it doesn't mention him as a, as a figure, but it mentions the concept of the movement that's going to happen. And he mentions what a, a, from Bil'am also, okay? He mentions the prophecies. But um, now he says like this. I'm skipping a little bit. But he says, don't believe that the king, that the Mashiach is going to have to do miracles. He doesn't have to do miracles. He, or, or he's going to do anything new in the world. Or he's going to bring the dead to life. Well, there is such a thing as Tchiyat HaMitim. We're going to get to that in one of the classes, I promise, Okay? He says, don't believe these things Don't believe the things that the fools say about the Mashiach. It's not true. Because look, Rabbi Akiva believed that Bar Kuchba was the Mashiach, even though Bar Kuchba didn't do any miracles. So obviously that wasn't necessary. He says, He said uh, that Rabbi Akiva and many of his colleagues believed Bar Kuchba was going to be the Mashiach until he was killed. Right? So that shows you if somebody dies, they're not the Mashiach. It's, it, it seems seems obvious you know but there are entire religions based on people who died and are still believed to have been the Mashiach so yeah that's a different story he didn't die it's, well, that, that's, but, the, um, but even, the, the, even the one that did in any case he says the main thing is this that the laws of nature are not going to change. This is what the Rambam says, okay? The Rambam says there's not going to be any change and there's not going to be any change in the Torah. So how do we know if somebody's the king, the Mashiach? He says, if you find a person that rises up from the house of David, which we wouldn't really know if they're from the house of David nowadays because we don't have a clear lineage. We'd have to take a guess, okay? Most people are probably from Shevet Yehuda, so they could be potentially, uh, you know, other than the Levim and Kohanim. It says, if he's somebody who studies Torah and does the mitzvot according to the Torah, according to the, you know, the way that it's properly understood, and he pushes all of the Jewish people to follow the Torah and the mitzvot, 
and he fights the wars of God, meaning he leads them also in battle as necessary, and he succeeds, and he defeats all the nations, and he brings all the Jews back to Israel, this person is the Mashiach. Okay, so the Rambam has a very, the Rambam's understanding of what the Mashiach is, is you don't become the Mashiach and then do the job. This is an idea that we get from the Christians, basically. Oh, this person was born the Messiah. They were born that way. There was a star over there, the place where they were born, and three wise men came and brought gifts, you know, whatever, all of the, everyone knows these stories, right? That's a belief that there's an intrinsic messianic quality to somebody. We don't believe that. We believe you, you earn the title of Mashiach. So we saying if a person rises up and they have all of the qualifications of Mashiach and they do the job and accomplish what the Mashiach is supposed to do, that's the Mashiach now. Says them Mashiach bivadai. Okay? Says if he didn't succeed or he got killed, so clearly this is not the Mashiach. He's a good person, great person maybe, but he's not the Mashiach. Okay? And uh, and sometimes, uh, you know, and then he gets into the idea of, you know, uh, false messiahs that have risen, arisen over history and so on and so forth. But, um, but he says, uh, is, he talks about, for example, Christianity. But I don't want to, maybe we'll touch on that at a different time. I don't want to go into that right now. But just to finish off the main point that I wanted to speak about today, which is, he says, don't think in the times of Mashiach something is going to change in nature. You know, like I, that all of a sudden lions and bears will become friendly and they will live in our houses and, um, and we'll be able to fly and um, float on thin air or anything like that. He says, no, all of those prophecies are metaphors. Like when it talks about the, the lion with the lamb, it's a metaphor. It means that the nations that were very aggressive and ferocious nations will coexist with the weaker nations. Everyone's going to exist together, coexist in happiness. And uh, those who were once compared to a wolf or, a, you know, because they were aggressive nations who are plundering everyone else, they will be living in peace and, and harmony with everyone. And people won't steal from each other and they won't, be, they won't be oppressing each other. Everybody will return to the true religion and do the right thing. Okay? And he says, and he says, some we don't really know exactly how things are going to go down. These wars that are going to happen before, or whatever it is, he says we don't really know. Okay, maybe Eliyahu Navi is going to come before. Some chachamim say yes. We don't really know exactly. So he says about a lot of things we don't know. But one of the things he says is Lolam lo Person should not. Focus too much on the different legends in Midrashim about what's going to happen in the times of Mashiach. Why? Because they don't bring you to Ahava or Yirat Hashem. And you shouldn't sit around and try, it doesn't bring you to a love or fear of God to fantasize about what it's going to be like in the times of Mashiach. That shouldn't be your focus. Or try to calculate exactly when the Mashiach is going to come like it's a predetermined thing. It says these are not the best things to do. So why did the Chachamim and the Nevi'im want the Mashiach to come so much? Not so they would have political power. Not so they would be able to party all the time. Not so that nobody would have to go to work anymore. Not, not because of any of these things, but because it would give them the freedom and the ability to learn Torah, to do mitzvot, to come close to Hashem. And imagine living in a world, and this is why I use Martin Luther King as the example too. Um, right now, it's impossible to envision a world where the fundamental values of society would be different. You know, we say, well, people will always be about self-interest. People will always be about money. People will always be about pursuing instant gratification and pleasure. People will never say, I want to devote my life to seeking the wisdom of God and establishing justice on the planet. People are not ever going to be changed and start thinking like that. Okay? But you see that values of a society can change. Right? The values of a society, it's slow change a lot of times, but through education and persistence, the values in a society, the culture of a society can evolve. It can change. It can absorb new ideas. It can become uh, more refined and closer to the truth. And so the idea is that in the times of Mashiach, what's really going to change? The values of society are going to change. 
the entire global community will have a different set of priorities. It won't be like today where we're busy trying to study Torah to understand Hashem and how we should live our lives and how to, you know, how to, uh, you know, how to fulfill God's will and how to apply his wisdom to the choices that we make and all that. And everyone else is just partying and trying to figure out how to get to the next weekend so they can go get drunk at some party or whatever, whatever they do nowadays. Okay? And we feel like our values and the values of the rest of the world are on a totally different track and they think we're crazy and we think they're crazy. Okay? Imagine a world where, no, actually we all subscribe to the same values. And suddenly if everybody subscribes to the same values and you have actual peace on earth, peace not meaning absence of war. What is real peace? Peace actually is, is cooperation towards a common goal. Real peace doesn't mean you never disagree, obviously. You can have disagreements, but when you have a common goal and a common set of values, you have peace because the values are greater than you. When you have agendas and personal interests over material things, over honor, over who's going to get credit for this, over who's going to control a certain piece of land, who's going to have certain wealth, who's going to get the business from this one or that one, who's going to, you know... All of these things are material things where we have personal interest and therefore we have competition and we have conflict. But if everybody's working together towards a common goal that transcends personal interest, a common goal that is a spiritual common goal, okay? Common goal of coming closer to God. So that changes the calculus of everything because that's, that's why the Navi describes, and we know that the Navi describes, oh, you know, people putting their swords down, beating their swords into... Uh, pruning hooks and all of these things that, you know, lo, lo goy one nation will not lift up a sword against another nation. They won't have to study warfare anymore. Nobody will be interested in war anymore. Could you imagine? You have to be able to imagine for it to be able to be real. I can imagine that more easily than I can imagine a fully constructed third Beit HaMikdash falling out of the sky and landing on Har Habayit. That's difficult for me to imagine, but I could imagine a world where people saw the benefit and the goodness of seeking knowledge of Hashem as the purpose of their life instead of material things, instead of instant physical gratification, and that everybody got together and collaborated together just for that purpose. In, and, and everything else became insignificant. All the things people fight about, get jealous about, have conflicts about, have wars about, kill over. All of those things would be insignificant. You would say, what's the point? The same way we look at the dark ages now, we're like, where you know the church burned people at the stake, not just for not being Christian, but because they disagreed about some point in the Christian belief. So they were declared a heretic, so they burned them. You know, or all the people who were killed because they didn't believe in this or they didn't believe in that. Or, you know, in the communist regime and in different dictatorships over history. You know, all of these people who are killed over not what we look back and we say it was like the dark ages. You know, we, we look at it as a tragic time. So imagine looking at now as a tragic time. How much energy is wasted on nonsense? How much fighting and competition is, you know, it goes on over things that are really not important, are really not significant in any ultimate sense. And can we educate mankind and womankind, of course, to, uh, to appreciate values that are transcendent and that unite humanity around a common goal so that we don't have reason to fight and we don't have reason to... We, we lose our pettiness not by fighting pettiness. You lose pettiness by being interested in something that's not petty. The people who are not interested in petty things, it's not because they trained themselves not to care about petty things. It's because they're interested in things that are much more important. So the petty things uh, don't, don't attract their attention. Understand? So that's the, uh, that's the dream of the Messianic time that the Rambam is talking about. He's talking about a time that the whole, not only the Jewish people, but the whole world will be interested in only one thing, which is to get closer to God, to fulfill our true human potential. And all the things that people fought about for thousands of years will look like complete nonsense from that vantage point. Just like maybe in your own mind, 
you also agree that they're nonsense. But there's nobody bold enough, there's nobody strong enough, there's nobody persuasive enough or influential enough to lead humanity to that understanding so that they could drop. Even to, that's why it's such an imperfect analogy, like even a person like Martin Luther King Jr. or whoever the civil rights activists and leaders were, at the end of the day, how did they measure success? How did they measure equality? How did they measure success in securing fair treatment or equal opportunity for everyone in material terms, right? Is everyone getting the same jobs? Is everybody getting the same education, which really just translates into jobs for most people, right? Is everybody getting the same kind of car, living in the same kind of neighborhood, having the same kind of house? What is their income, okay? It's all in material terms. So as good as it is, justice, it's still dealing with material things. It's not educating people beyond that. And that's what the Mashiach would do. See? So we play a part in bringing the Mashiach by becoming the kind of people who would be receptive to that message. Because if we ourselves aren't receptive to that message, then obviously it's going to fall on deaf ears like it did when all the Nevi'im tried to convey it in the past. But the people were rooted in, blinded by their interest in material things and the pleasures of the, the, you know, the, pleasures of the uh, physical world. So if we can educate ourselves past that and we yearn for a kind of life where the proper values are at the center. Even just think about movies and TV. I haven't watched TV. I never really watched much TV, but I don't even know if people watch TV anymore, do they? It's like the dark ages. Oh, yeah. Um, even that, what are the storylines revolving around? What is important? Love. I'm not trying to trash love. Love is a wonderful thing. Everyone should have it and be blessed to to enjoy it, but the, uh, it's not the be-all and end-all of everything. I'm, I hope that doesn't come as a shock to you. Hang that, right? Most storylines have to do with love or they have to do with somebody who was a, an underdog who succeeds at something. But the something that they succeed at is usually idiotic, like being a good boxer or winning a soccer game or whatever nonsense, right? It's either about romance or about achievements, right? The conflicts usually revolve around one of these two things. No? Something, again, physical, material. Something within our, what we naturally think is really important and what our society says is really important. Having the material things and having social relationships and bonds that are gratifying to us. That's it. Never make you look beyond that. Never would think of anything... You're not going to have any movies about a guy who discovers the existence of God and starts living like Abraham Avinu. Well, you could, but like the only people who are going to watch that are the people in this room. You know what I mean? Like nobody else. Not going to be like a super popular movie. You know, the closest that they ever got to that was like The Matrix, which is an old movie. I, I'm not really in, in the world of movies, so I don't know what. Maybe there have been good movies since. Occasionally you'll have a kind of a, like an. Uh, like an off-the-beaten-path movie that sort of challenges assumptions and challenges the values of the society in a meaningful way, but they're usually not the super popular movies. They're usually movies that are like at some film festival that you hear about and then it goes right to TV. It never goes to the theater or it's at a select theaters for, for a few days. You know, Not a major, major movie. When it's a really intellectually challenging movie, they do occasionally have such things. Okay? Imagine if you took all the energy, all the money, okay, and all the creative talents and all the expertise that's used to promote the nonsense of Hollywood values, okay, even Disney with its, you know, very simplistic, forget about the fact that it's, you know, that it's full of bad messages for women, especially Disney, but, you know, even just in general nonsensical values that it promotes. Imagine if all that energy went into creating media that actually that educated people towards a life of wisdom. 
a life that was actually truly good. You know, we have such means at our disposal, but they're used. Why, don't, why aren't they used for that? Do you know why they're not used for that? Because if anybody made a movie about that, nobody would go. If they even thought of the idea of making a movie like that, nobody would go, and they wouldn't make money. And at the end of the day, what are they really about? Making money. So they're going to show you on that screen, or they're going to sing to you in that song on the radio, the things that you're going to pay money for. It's a cycle. You see? They keep us socialized with certain values and, and, and certain perspective. And that perspective is what keeps us coming back to the theater, keeps us buying the album, keeps us following the celebrity, whatever it is. The whole culture is, uh, feeds back into the values that they want us to subscribe to. And then, you know, shows us on the screen the things that we already, you know, is speaking a language that it's actually taught us to speak. Like our culture taught us to speak a certain language and the movies are just affirming and, you know, and, and uh, validating that, that same perspective in different ways, in different ways all the time. And when occasionally it deviates like, oh, in this movie, instead of it being about a love interest of a guy and a girl, it's about two sisters that love each other. Okay, that's very nice, but still. Like, I'm talking about Frozen, you know. But still, like, it's the same. It's still, it's like six of one, half a dozen of the other. You know, it's not, it's not really advancing us past the basic values and the basic framework that we've been socialized to, to operate within. So this is what the Mashiach would do. Change that framework. Use all these amazing tools that we have at our disposal. Like, the Gemara talks about how, I'll end with this, I promise. The Gemara talks about how in the future, you know, you'll be able to walk through a forest and pick clothes off a tree. Okay, you'll be able to pick fully grown loaves of bread out of the ground. You won't have to do any work. Don't do we basically live in that time. Okay, who here ever sews their own clothing? And I apologize to the people who do. There probably are some in our community. They probably are. Like you know, I know my aunt does, but like you know. Like the, the, in Iran, yes, but I'm saying here you go to the store and you get it right off the rack. It's like getting it off a tree, right? You go buy a loaf of bread. It costs 50 cents. You go in the store, whatever, a dollar. It's cheap still. It's relatively cheap. Bread, things like that, cheap. It practically grows on trees. We have all of those things, meaning our material life could be so easy to manage and we could invest all of the energy in what really counts. But we are socialized to believe that no, we need to get more from the material life. It needs to be more. It needs to be more glamorous. It needs to be more romantic. It needs to be more whatever. We never break out of that framework to think of something higher. And that's what the idea of the Mashiach is. Somebody who will change the values of society. So you'll start seeing movies and media and culture that points you to something more enlightened. And you shouldn't think it's just a modern thing. If you look at theater movies, not movies, plays, uh, uh, drama, books, novels, uh, you know, going back hundreds and hundreds of years, throughout the whole history of Western culture, most entertainment, most media is about the same kind of stuff, okay? They used to write, they used to have a lot more time on their hands, they didn't watch movies, so they read thousand page novels, you know? But basically, they're all about relationships and love and all those conflicts. They never, they're rarely, if ever, really challenging us to, um, uh, to think beyond. And so we have all these tools, but we don't have a leader. We don't have a, we don't have a leader who can use them to broadcast the right message. And that's what the Mashiach will be doing. Okay, that's, that's how the Rambam is. There's a lot more to say, but I, I don't want to go too late. And if, so if there's any questions, we'll take them and then we'll save more for next week. Any any questions? Yep. How can one person do all that and fight a war, mm-hmm. many wars at the same time? Well, it's not a. It's a like, a, well, it's it's a. Um, I think of it as this. I'm not saying their job would be easy, and I don't think they would do it alone. I mean, I I I don't envision them like uh, purely, you know, doing everything alone. Like, uh, they would be. They would have help and they would have a team of people they worked with and they would you know but they would be the primary leader just like I mean we see that in the world we see people who are 
we see leaders who multitask or they delegate certain tasks, but they are the ones that are supplying the vision and 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 driving the you know driving the machine forward. But yeah, it, it's it's possible to envision. It would require a team. I don't think one person is not going to do all those things on their own for sure. Right. 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 So there's there are yeah there's there are there are midrashim that talk about a time you know there's two thousand years of emptiness two thousand years of Torah, two thousand years of Mashiach that oh we're getting close to the end of the two thousand years that you're supposed to you know that they, they talk about these different eras of history. Um, and uh, but exactly when you calculate them from is not so clear. The other thing you're talking about is Mashiach will either come when we're worthy of it or when it's, things are so bad that you know we we need it. So again, that's something that um, you can understand. That look at look at from history the Jews in Mitzrayim, right? When the Jews were in Egypt, when did God send Moshe? When they hit rock bottom and they cried out and said, you know, we can't take this anymore. We're at rock bottom. They didn't even know how to proceed. So there are two times when a person's really receptive to a message. One is when they've built up to the point that they're actually ready for that new way of life. They're ready for that. And the other one is when they've sunk so low that they need it because they don't have any other, they're desperate. So we obviously don't want that to be the circumstance. We'd rather have it that we are on the brink of reaching it and we just need another push uh, to make it to the next step. We don't want to have to hit rock bottom. But that would be, that, that's what it means. It means that, you know, there are two situations where a leader like that would be able to guide them. Okay? Yes? We're good? Okay, so come back next week. We'll do more. We have, there's a lot more to say about it. And if you have any more questions, bring your questions also next week. Okay?